0: CEO of Charles Schwab, Walt Bettinger, has an unconventional way of getting to know people before hiring them for a position in his company. In his interviews, he would often take candidates out for breakfast and then he would ask the manager of that restaurant to purposely mess up the order of the person that he was interviewing. He understands that people show their true character in the face of adversity and when things don't go as planned. A minor inconvenience such as a messed up breakfast order may reveal whether the person is truly understanding and sympathetic with others, whether they get frustrated when things don't go their way, or maybe they just avoid the problem altogether and pretend, you know, well, it is what it is and they don't address it at all. Walt Beninger understands something that I think we, we all know intuitively deep down inside. And in that it's easy to pretend to be something that you're not when you're in perfect conditions. But when we face trials, when we face pressures, who we truly are is revealed. And sometimes we don't like what we see when we're put under the gun. Trials and pressures in life will reveal our true character our true colors and our character will reveal what is most important to us and who is most important to us so even as we go through hardships and pressures even today whatever it is you're going through what does it reveal about you who and what do you value and treasure most as you go through trials Our account today, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72, acts as a mirror into our own souls. And we are forced to grapple with our true condition as we see both Peter and Jesus undergo severe pressure and trials. And it reveals who and what they value most. And in turn, it will do the same with us would you please turn there with me in your copies of the scriptures, Mark chapter 14 here this morning. And please follow along as I read our passage 53 through 72. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against them, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hand. Yet their testimony did not even agree on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have any answer to give to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway, and a rooster crowed. Then the maidservant saw him again. She began to tell those standing nearby, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, You are certainly one of them. Since you're also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear. I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept come to this account this morning, we remember that Jesus has just been abandoned by everyone that claimed to love him in the garden. All his disciples have fled and even a man with a linen garment flies away naked rather than be taken captive with Jesus. And here we find Jesus then being taken to the high priest's house in the middle of the night. A middle of the night for a trial that is rigged against him. And while Jesus is being led away towards this trial, we're told that Peter, while he initially scattered at the beginning with all the rest of the disciples, seems to have had a a change of heart. He seems to have turned around and began following Jesus and these people who have taken him captive. And 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 for a moment, it seems like, wow, there's there's hope here. Not everyone has abandoned Jesus. Maybe Peter will live up to the boast that he made earlier on. I'll even die with you, Jesus, before I deny you, or cut and run. Maybe, G- maybe Peter's going to actually live up to his boast. So he follows at a distance to see where Jesus is taken. And it leads him right into the high priest's courtyard, right into the middle of the den of wolves. He tries to get as close as he possibly can to Jesus without being spotted by those who have arrested Jesus. And he begins warming himself by the fire. While Peter is outside in the courtyard warming himself by the fire, Mark turns us over to Jesus who is now inside the high priest's house. Now again, this is in the middle of the night. And this was pre-planned as it has the leading Jewish rulers all there in the middle of the night, the Sanhedrin. And so this is their plan to do away with Jesus. Rig a trial against Jesus. And here they will act as both judge and jury as they seek to put Christ to death. Now all they need is the evidence. And so they look for evidence against Jesus in the form of witnesses. They're looking for those who will testify against Jesus so they can kill him. And perhaps we're wondering at this point, why why don't they just kill Jesus on the spot, right? I mean, just save that step, just kill him. Why do you need these witnesses? And certainly they would if they had the authority to. But we remember that Israel is under Roman occupation. And so the right to kill people did not belong to them at all. It belonged to Rome. And so in order for them to put Jesus to death legally without getting into trouble... They need a conviction on Jesus. They need testimony worthy of death so that they can turn him over to the Roman occupiers and have him killed. So they seek testimony, legitimate testimony, to try to get him killed. But as they look for this, we find that these testimonies aren't sticking at all. None of them. Jesus is not guilty. And so we find testimonies that are false, testimonies that are made up and not coherent when they are questioned. Again, it was important that these testimonies stuck once the Romans evaluated them. And when evaluated, none of them are sticking. There's too many conflictions at all. The closest thing they seem to have on Jesus here is that he threatened to destroy the temple built with hands. But even this is presented falsely. Now, if we know our, our Bibles at all, you might be thinking well, didn't Jesus say that the temple would be destroyed in three days and three days later it would be raised? And, and if, if he did say that, then, then why is this false? Why does Mark say this is false? Now, Mark doesn't give record or context to Jesus saying these exact words earlier on, but John in his gospel does. John chapter 2, verse 19. And here we read that Jesus, in response to the Jews' demand for a sign, says to the people, this will be your sign. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. He says these words to the Jews. And so this is no doubt what the Jews are referencing at the trial. He said he's going to destroy the temple and raise it up. And so while Jesus does say these words, Their testimony is false in at least two different ways here. In one sense, Jesus never claimed that he himself would destroy this physical temple as they're claiming or proposing. He's just saying, this is going to happen. So this is the first sense in which it's false. But the second reason it's false is because they're twisting what Jesus intended with those words. And as we read John's account here, when he says this, he tells us immediately afterwards that he's speaking about the destruction of his body. His body was the temple that would be destroyed. But three days later, it would be raised again. And in this way, a new way to access God would be formed. Not through the physical temple, which the Jews went to to get access to God, but through Christ our new and better temple. He would give us access to God now through his finished work on the cross. And when we fast forward and we see Jesus crucified and killed, what happened? The curtain in their temple is torn from top to bottom, rendering completely obsolete their way to access God through the physical temple. Jesus has made a way to go to God directly. Is the new temple the new way that we can boldly come into Christ, God's presence? So these Jews try to get Jesus on his claim that he's going to destroy their temple, he's a threat, he needs to be killed. But their testimonies don't agree, and nothing is sticking. Now, you can imagine the frustration that they must be experiencing right now. Right? We've already read four to five different times in Mark, they're trying to kill Jesus over and over and over again. And here they have them. They finally have them within their grasp. And now these testimonies aren't sticking. They got nothing on Jesus up to this point. And so the high priest finally takes matters into his own hands. He's done with these false testimonies. He decides to question Jesus directly instead. So not having said anything up to this point, he goes to Jesus and he says, don't you have anything to say to these allegations, what these men are, are saying you did? But Jesus keeps silent. He doesn't say anything at all. In fact, up to this point, he hasn't responded to one accusation made against him. And in this, we see really Isaiah 53. Like a sheep silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth the high priest though asked him one more question one more question in a desperate attempt to somehow get him to incriminate himself he asked are you the messiah the son of the blessed one in other words are you the christ the one promised from the beginning to save his people are you the son of the blessed one a, a euphemism for the divine name of god are you the son of God and if we pull back for a moment and we look at Mark as a whole this is the question that we've been working towards the entire time who is Jesus who do you believe him to be is he truly the Christ the son of God who is he to you We've gone through Mark. This is the perpetual question that's faced us over and over and over again. And as Jesus is revealed to us by Mark, he is revealed as the true Messiah and the beloved Son of God. And this reality of Jesus as Messiah is solidified as Peter calls Jesus the Christ in chapter 8. You are the Christ. And then Jesus tells them, Don't speak a word of this to anyone in Christ's identity as the Son of God is made evident. As we see demons proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. And even as we see a voice from heaven come down and say, this is my beloved Son. This is who Jesus is. But he won't let anyone speak a word of it yet. Until now. Here, when questioned about his identity, For the first time, we expect him to say nothing, just as he has been throughout the rest of the gospel. But here, he does what we don't expect, and he claims his identity. He says, yes, yes, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God, and you will see him seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is who I am. Jesus is the Messiah and the true Son of God. And in doing this, he quotes two passages to his accusers. The first is Psalm 110, verse 1. And if you'll remember from just a couple chapters back already, he's referenced this passage, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. He's already used this to stump his accusers and his enemies. And he's saying, I am that one who will be seated at the right hand of God. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. He's given me all power and authority over my enemies. And in this, he speaks of himself as being greater than even David. And the second passage he quotes here is Daniel 7:13, where Jesus claims to be the Son of Man who is coming with the clouds of heaven before God. And here, Jesus infers that he will be given an everlasting kingdom that will never go away, where every tribe, language, and nation will serve him. And in doing this, Jesus intends to clearly communicate for all of us who he believes himself to be. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and they, too, will one day see this reality come to fruition. Jesus will be vindicated. And so we are meant to question, what do we believe about Jesus? Do we believe everything that he says about himself? And will we submit to him as king over us? Is he your Messiah? Is he your king? Well, the answer is a clear no from the high priest and those surrounding him. In response to Jesus' words, the high priest tears his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Rather than believe what Jesus says about himself, they condemn himself for blasphemy, for making himself out to be equal with God, a crime fitting of death. And since they all heard Jesus say this on front of all of them, They say they don't need any more witnesses. We've heard them commit blasphemy. And so they finally get what they want because Jesus testifies to his true identity. And so they begin to spit on him. They blindfold him. They beat him. And they mockingly tell him to prophesy. When finally given the opportunity, they despise and reject the Messiah the very son of god. And in these verses we see so much irony in what takes place. As they tell Jesus to prophesy, what has he already been prophesying in this gospel? He's literally prophesied everything that they are now doing to him. Four times Jesus has mentioned how he would be rejected by these leaders, how he would be mocked scorned and eventually killed and we see him all of this playing out just as he said he would and so as they mock and condemn jesus and tell him to prophesy they do exactly as jesus prophesied already we also see the irony in their condemnation of jesus for blasphemy they condemn him for blasphemy but the reality is they are the ones that are blaspheming god they are the ones that reject jesus as the true son of god and are therefore guilty of the very crime they are claiming that jesus is and yet in all of this jesus willingly signs his death warrant at the hands of his enemies and in this he fulfills isaiah 53 he was oppressed and afflicted that he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. And Jesus does this because we all went astray like sheep. We all went our own way and the Lord has punished Jesus for the iniquity of us all. And so what we witness here is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah tried unfairly and unjustly and condemned for us. And under this intense trial, this intense pressure, he doesn't flee. He doesn't run away from his calling as the true Messiah. He willingly goes to his death for us. While Jesus is being tried, condemned, mistreated, we then switch back over to Peter in the courtyard where we left him warming himself by the fire and we're told that one of the maidservants of the high priest enters the courtyard suddenly and then she sees peter warming himself by the fire the light of the fire and looking at him she recognizes him to be one of jesus's disciples so she approaches peter saying you were also with him you were with jesus the man from Nazareth, weren't you? But Peter denies it immediately. And he and he moves away from her toward the entryway. Maybe, you know, just to prepare for an escape if he needed, or maybe to get away from the fire to a darker area to conceal himself. And it's at this moment that the rooster crows. But no warning bells are going off for Peter. He doesn't remember what Jesus said to him just hours ago, how he would deny him three times before the rooster crows twice. A little while later, the maid servant sees Peter again. And this time, the situation heats up a little bit. And she begins telling other people around her, this man is definitely one of Jesus' disciples. I've seen him with Jesus. But again, Peter denies her accusation. Finally, the situation begins to boil over as we read. And then others begin to accuse Peter of being Jesus' disciple because he was a Galilean. They were most likely able to tell because of his voice. And they knew that Jesus' disciples were Galileans. So you have to be one of his disciples, Peter. And then Peter begins to curse and, and, and swear in the strongest of terms he didn't even know that man. He won't even use the name of Jesus at this point. The man whom he spent three years of his life with. The man who healed his mother-in-law. The man whom he witnessed walking on the water and who rescued him from drowning. The man he swore he would never abandon, leave, or forsake. This same man that Peter has known all these years, he's now claiming to have never known. And he does so with oaths and curses from heaven above. And immediately after doing so, the rooster crows a second time. And Peter remembers everything, everything that Jesus said he would do. How he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed twice. And he breaks down and he weeps bitterly. Where we see Jesus stand firm in the midst of accusation against the most powerful in Israel. Here we see Peter fail miserably in the midst of lowly surf. Where we see Jesus say true to his identity and mission, we see Peter quickly abandon his calling as a disciple of Christ. And under these intense trials that they both underwent, we see who and what was most important. To both of them. And for Jesus, following his Father's will, submitting to him, and saving us at the expense of his own life was more important than even saving his own life. And for Peter, following his own will and saving his own skin and his own life was most important. And as a result, Peter mourns deeply over his sin. There is no joy, no glory. And abandoning or denying Christ, only great sorrow. And so, as we see this dark contrast between both Jesus and Peter, it causes us to question what is truly in our hearts here this morning. What comes out of us when we are put under pressure for identifying with Christ, being a disciple of Christ? And more often than we care to admit, we are. More like Peter than not. When put under the pressure of trial, our hearts reveal often our own faithlessness to Christ. And while we may not say explicitly, I don't know Jesus and I don't know that man, so often our actions speak louder than our own words do. It costs us our comfort to be identified with Jesus or to follow Jesus. We will often... Avoid Jesus for that moment and perhaps pretend it doesn't even exist. If identifying as a follower of Christ might cause my co-workers to look at me negatively, then I will never bring him up in my conversation for as long as I possibly can. If identifying with Jesus costs me popularity or opportunity, we'll try to find ways around it. And in these moments, we find ourselves so often like Peter. Denying associations with Jesus under the pressure pressure that we want for approval of man, for the love of comfort or the love of riches or opportunity. And so we try to blend in to the crowd like Peter does. We try to blend in rather than willingly stand out and receive the condemnation that comes from being Christ's disciple. The reality is, we don't want The earthly shame that comes from being named as one of Christ's true disciples. And in this, our cowardly hearts are often revealed. And our love and devotion for Jesus is shown to be what it truly is when push comes to shove. Little to nothing at all. And what is truly shown is what was shown for Peter. We are sinners in dire need of God's grace. And so in the face of many failures that we all experience, like Peter, we repent. And we should mourn over our sins again and our lack of love and devotion for Christ that is so clearly seen here. And we look to Jesus for restoration and hope. For where we have failed often and frequently, we remember that Jesus never failed, even when put under the most intense scrutiny there is. And where we are faithless, we remember that Jesus remains faithful to us. And so we humble ourselves when we see our sins, and we are broken before him. This is what we are called to do before Christ. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so for Peter, this moment, this moment was the turning point for him. Peter needed to be eliminated of his pride, and he needed to see his true condition as a true, thinner, entire need of God's grace as weak and helpless apart from God. And in the end, despite this remarkable failure that Peter underwent, there is even greater restoration and power in his life. And Peter stands here then as an example that no matter how far you have fallen from Christ, even if you've denied him to his face, there's still forgiveness for you. There is restoration. But we must look to Christ. So we run to Christ. We hope in him. We trust in his word above all for it is his word that gives life. And we look forward to his return. We look forward to that day when we will be freed from our sinful bodies and our weaknesses. And when Christ returns, we do not want to be found as those who are denying him by the way that we live, but as those who are eagerly waiting for Jesus, as those who are alert and awake to our weaknesses and our helplessness apart from Christ. And when he comes, all will be made right, and every wrong will be corrected, All our sins and our sinful bodies washed away. And we will see him and be with the completer of our faith. So as we look towards that day, let us run to Christ even now as we observe the Lord's Supper. Father, we come before you. And we, like Peter, often fail you so often. We deny you by the way that we live, by our words and our actions and our deeds. We pretend that you don't exist when it's inconvenient. And so often we find in our hearts faithlessness. We don't treasure you as we should. We treasure other things instead. And because of that, we so frequently abandon you and deny you in our pursuit of other pleasures. So Lord, we ask for forgiveness. We ask for forgiveness of our sins, that you would continually humble us, that you continue to break us from the sins that you died to save us from. And that in this, we would find your grace all the more beautiful and all the more glorious. Help us to run to Christ. Help us to see him as beautiful and awesome and powerful as he truly is. And to place our hope there and nowhere else. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.